0: Good morning. The kids can <clears throat> join Jeff and Jerry in the back for the children's sermon. As they go, it's a reminder of our call um, to disciple the children, to shape them, pointing pointing them to Jesus and preparing them for a life of worship. That's That's why we... Uh, Love to have them in with us for worship and um, have the children's sermon for them. So uh, I thank those that that serve in that way. Excuse me. Uh, You uh, you may have heard by now that we are starting a new eight-week sermon series this morning titled, What Happens to Me When I Die? The Hope of Heaven. Um, I'll let you know a little bit of where we're going in March. We will return to our time in John's Gospel. We will, um, Lord willing, finish that time by May. And then in May, uh, as best I can tell now, turn to 1 Kings. But now we begin this series. And so why this series? Over the past few years, I've had A number of conversations with many of you. Uh, Some of those conversations have uh, come in times of pastoral counseling. Sometimes those conversations have come in the midst of grief. Sometimes those conversations have just been born out of Holy Spirit-led curiosity. In those conversations, the theme of heaven continues to surface itself. I wondered when was the right time to to explore this topic together, and I have put it off, <laughs> but have felt like now is the time for us to broach the subject. But I want to address something as we, uh, as we begin today. <clears throat> this sermon series is different than our normal practice, where we would spend an extended period of time in one book, uh, going verse by verse. Uh, this is more of a systematic theological approach to the word here's what i mean by that we're looking to see what the whole of scripture has to say about a given topic so if you look in your bulletin you'll notice a large list of passages be good to just leave that open it'll help you today This is meant for us to to look and see what the Bible as a whole says. That's how our theology is formed. uh, The Bible will drive this sermon just as the Bible drives our theology, but that theology helps inform the way we read the Bible. Um, You see there before you not an exhaustive list of the texts that deal with the topic before us, but a representative sample. Sample. So again, keep your bulletins open, but maybe as you look at your bulletin, uh, you've picked up on something else. This is a series ultimately about the hope of heaven. But as we think about the topic of heaven, there is an elephant in the room begging that we pay him attention. That elephant in the room is death. We look today as we begin this series to see what God's word has to tell us about death. As we prepare to to turn there, would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we ask this morning that you would anoint our ears to hear from you, not from man, not uh, a man-centered view or, or opinion we ask for your Spirit to guide us, to lead us into truth, your truth. Do this as you draw us ever more closely to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Last Monday night, millions of football fans were forced to confront the reality of death face-to-face. It was the first quarter of the Buffalo Bills-Cincinnati Bengals football game. And Bill's safety, DeMar Hamlin, took a hit to the chest. The timing of that hit in the sequence of his cardiac rhythm led to a tragic set of circumstances that forced him into cardiac arrest. Hamlin got up from the hit and then immediately collapsed. The medical personnel rushed to his aid, saw what was going on, and immediately began administering CPR. At this time, Hamlin is recovering in the hospital, but at that time, fans and his teammates and opponents did not know what started out as a game. Quickly became something else. The scenes, the pictures, since the scene that night was was haunting. Grown men, professional football players, stood with dazed looks on their faces. They were crying. They were praying. They were comforting one another because they were faced with death. When was the first time you encountered death? Do you remember the grief? Do you remember the questions? When was the last time You encountered death. Some of us now, and all of us at some point, are going to be staring down death face to face. What is death? Some, maybe here, many in our culture would say that death is just a natural part of life. A natural part of the life cycle. That's no real comfort to those facing it. And the Bible tells us something very different. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grand story of redemption that God has written and that we find in his word begins with creation. It's Genesis 1 and 2. And there in the beginning in creation, there was only life. Adam and Eve lived in blessed communion with God. God gave them the blessing of life. Life abundant, but that life came with a condition. Obedience. Perfect obedience. And if they failed, as we just read, there would be curse. And the curse that came with their disobedience was death. What theologians call the covenant of works that god entered into this covenant with adam and eve blessing them with the gift of life and life abundant life marked by by a sweet union with god but that condition also remained that if they were to fail in that condition they would receive the curse of death it was an abundance that they had there in the garden and god had lavishly offered it all to them save one tree it was theirs to enjoy but sadly it wasn't enough they fell to temptation the whispers of satan who whispered to them, God is holding out on you. There is more there for you. There is another tree, and you deserve it. Adam and Eve fell for the lie, hook, line, and sinker, and we've been falling for it ever since. This is Genesis 3, and it ushered in Act 2 of God's grand Grand narrative, grand story of redemption. Act two was the fall. And with the fall came death. It wasn't immediate. Adam and Eve continued to live, but in the moment, death had set in. Death for them and death for all their offspring since. A death that creation itself experiences. But do you see? Death was not natural. Life is natural. Death is the curse. It is the punishment, the enemy. And all of creation has been groaning ever since. The rest of the Bible, and quite frankly the rest of our lives, is then played out, is set in the context of battle. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. To be destroyed. It implies a future destruction. We know that because we still experience death. And yet, the Bible presents an element of victory over that death. It's the gospel that in Christ, and in Christ alone, there is a victory now. But there will be an ultimate victory then. So in the now and not yet, in our experience of life at this stage of redemptive History. we live in a certain tension. There's a tension that exists between the struggle with death, with the battle, and with the hope of certain victory in Christ. We live in this tension because death is not yet fully defeated. It means... That death is to be grieved. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but it's a point that must be said. And it must be said for this reason. At times, we encounter, or maybe we are one, of those Christians who too quickly jumps to the end, to the next chapter. I mean, Jesus, I've got heaven. It's all right. Why mourn? Why grieve? Have you heard it? Have you thought it? John eleven thirty five 35 is the shortest and possibly the most powerful verse in all of Scripture. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Well, in John 11, Jesus is there the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, who has died. Jesus is weeping because his friend is dead. But the context of Scripture says that he not only wept, says that he is snorting mad. He knows what he's about to do. Jesus is there to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that Lazarus very soon is going to walk again. He's going to breathe again. But Jesus weeps. He is angry. He's angry over the reality of death. He's angry over the pain that death brings for his beloved. He's angry over the curse. And so should we. So should we be angry over death. So should we grieve. We will today and over the course of this series talk about the glories of heaven. We will also talk about the horrors of hell. We'll talk about redemption so that you and I might face eternity with confidence. But do not brush past this. There is still death. And so it is appropriate for us to grieve. And it is appropriate for us to patiently, lovingly grieve with those who are grieving. But should we fear death? should is a funny word should is a word that is shame inducing because should is a word that exposes a gap it's a gap between what we should do what we should experience and what we in reality are feeling what we in reality are doing gap exposed in this question should we fear death i remember being a young child on vacation we'd gone to the to the beach and i bought one of those cheap floats that you buy at those cheap stores down at the gulf (laughs) went out in the ocean and And I I paddled past the breaking waves. I laid down on my back and I closed my eyes for what seemed like only a few seconds. And then I opened them and I looked around. And when, with my childlike sense of depth perception, it seemed that I was miles from the shoreline. (laughs) Images flooded my mind images of how deep that ocean was how far below me that ocean floor was lying images of all the sea creatures that most certainly were were swimming just under my float and fear took over in the moment i feared death now the rest of the story is i easily made it back to shore But I didn't easily make it to sleep that night because fear had set in and it wouldn't let go. There's a sense of fear of death that we wrestle with at times that is acute, like the sharp pain of a broken bone. At times, there is a fear of death that is more of a dull ache in the background, just an ever-present unwanted companion you know this fear you know it acutely and you know it is that dull ache maybe for some it is a very present reality because this fear doesn't only come when we are children in the ocean at times it comes when we hear those words of diagnosis from the doctor. Again, some of us here are dealing with that now. So, why do we fear death? Many of us fear death because we fear pain and suffering, a very present reality of the fall. Some of us fear death because we fear the unknown, and even if we are in Christ, we do not know the date and time of our death. Even though we may be in Christ, we don't know all of the sequence of events that will be unleashed upon our death. We fear the unknown, and yet there are others of us who fear death because we fear the uncertainty of eternity. For a moment, can we focus on that fear? The question before us is in light of eternity: should we fear death? And to be honest with you, the answer is, it depends. Hebrews 9:27: "It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment this relative fear that we fear in regards to the uncertainty of eternity has less to do with death than it does with judgment you remember death is the curse for sin death entered in when adam and eve sinned but You and I, everyone in this room, inherited that sin nature. The sin nature is is a predisposition toward sin, but we embrace that predisposition. We not only have a predisposition toward sin, we have an ongoing habit of sin. It brings with it a curse. The world tends to judge whether or not a person is a good person or not based on the world's definition of relative morality. What factors go into a person's sense of morality? Let's weigh the scales. As long as it's not too far out of whack, we will give that person the blessed label of good person. Not with God. God judges based on his absolute perfect holiness. Matthew 5.48 tells us that you, therefore, are to be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. None of us. None of us measure up. No, not one. I, I, I need you to hear this. As you listen to this sermon, as you listen to this series, don't spend your time at least primarily thinking about the person who's not here that you wish was hearing it. Don't spend your time thinking about the person sitting beside you who you think needs to hear it. Listen to these sermons, all of them through the personal lens. We need to hear, every one of us, this reality and reflect upon it personally so that we might consider our own relationship to the God who is holy, holy, holy. And with that reflection, the question is before us, should we fear standing before this God on the day of judgment? A day that will most certainly come. You know the reoccurring nightmare? The one when we show up somewhere wearing nothing but our underwear. Preachers have a version of that at this pulpit. But why do we have that reoccurring nightmare? Because we fear being exposed. Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If we are trusting in our own merit, if we are trusting in our own relative morality, if we are trusting in our record. Then standing before the throne of God on the day of judgment ought terrify us. But praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We do not have to stand on our own. Hebrews 2, 10 and 11 and 14 and 15. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We've just celebrated Jesus' birth. These verses tell us why his birth is so worthy of celebration. In celebrating his birth, we celebrate the incarnation that God the Son without ceasing to be God, became man. The Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he did so for a purpose. This passage that we just read says that he was perfected through suffering. That perfection through suffering does not imply that there was some character flaw in Jesus. It means that his mission was not yet complete until he would suffer. You see, this mission that Jesus came to fulfill was the mission of perfect obedience. The covenant of works that I spoke about, the covenant that God entered into with Adam and Eve, it still exists. There still is punishment for sin, and that punishment is death. But there... On the heels of the fall. In the very next verse, we come to the first proclamation of the gospel, and God is the preacher. And He was preaching to Adam and Eve, and He told them that there would one day come an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Did you hear what we just read in Hebrews 2? that through death he would defeat the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Read Hebrews 2 in light of Genesis 2 and 3 and 3.15 and see that the Redeemer that was promised there in Genesis 3.15 is the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He came because we did not obey and do not obey his mission, Was to obey in our place. And he fulfilled it perfectly. And yet he still died. Why did Jesus die? We have said that death is the punishment for sin, and yet Jesus is the one who knew no sin. Jesus died not as a punishment. For his sin, but as a punishment for ours. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He died for ours, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He took our place in death, that we might join him in life in Christ and in Christ alone, we are delivered from the fear of death that holds us in the bondage of slavery. In Christ, we need not fear. Yes, there will still be a fear of, of pain and suffering, but not a fear related to uncertainty and judgment. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That by faith in Christ... We can be reconciled to God and stand boldly before the throne of God above. That is faith. Faith means a transfer of trust off of self and onto another. In the day of judgment, the one who has lived by faith will stand in faith before God. Pleading not our own record, but pleading the righteousness of Christ without fear. Is that you? Is that you sitting here this day? Are you pleading the righteousness of Christ? Are you living by faith alone in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us? Is it you? In Christ, we need not fear death because the future is certain. And that certainty is that we are not alone. There's a word that you'll hear today and you'll hear over the next seven weeks. It's a word that captures a theme. The word is this, with sitting by the bedside of a dear brother who has now departed, but who knew that his day was, was imminent. He shared with me that, yes, there are concerns over death, but the, the truth from Scripture that brings him hope is the truth that we see in our own meditation for worship this morning. Psalm 23, 4 says that, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. With. With. We're not alone in this life. We're in death. We're in eternity if we are in Christ. With is the answer to our fear. And with is the answer to the question of how shall we live now with the reality of death. A friend of mine asked me this week about my goal for this series. It was a helpful question because it forced me to think more clearly about the whole of what we're doing. As I thought about my goals, my prayer for this sermon series, I'll summarize it this way. I pray that this sermon series will awaken within us an eternal perspective. And if this sermon series, or more specifically, if the Word of God, accompanied by the presence of the Spirit of God, awakens us to an eternal perspective, then I pray we will also develop a sense of anticipation, a sense of hope, And a sense of meaning. I get fully that a sermon about death is is weighty. Some of us are thinking I would have rather had something a little happier to ring in the new year. We'll get there. This is a weighty topic. And I pray that it gets our attention. That it wakes us up to our place in God's story of redemption. As I thought about that, as I thought about those goals, as I thought about this topic of death, I, I considered the, the oftentimes unhelpful attitudes that we can have towards death. One of those, quite frankly, is just simply ignoring it. Putting our head in the sand and moving ahead as if death were not an issue. Another, though, is fear. We've dealt with that, but Maybe there's a third unhelpful attitude that we can at times bring towards death. That's ambivalence. There's a Christian version of that ambivalence. It's, you know, I'm good. I've got Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven. I'm happy either way. So I'm just going to go about my daily business. The Apostle Paul had a different take. Read his words in Philippians 1, 21 through 24. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. But to remain in the flesh is far more necessary on your account. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That is not ambivalence. Ambivalence is passive. Paul longs to be with Jesus. That's that sense of anticipation I've talked about. He desires it. Paul knows he will be with Jesus. That's hope. Hope is not a wish. Hope is a certainty in Christ. But Paul also knows that Jesus has work for him to do now. That's the sense of meaning I'm talking about. So how are we to live now with the reality of death? We're to live a life of meaning by living a life of fruitful labor. It's investing in the lives of others. Not living passively, happy-go-lucky. It's being intentional as we relate to others, pointing them to Jesus. Living lives where we join in the Lord's work of redeeming all things. Knowing that death is not the end. many respects, it is merely the beginning of eternity. How are we to live now with the reality of death? We are to trust in God's sovereign grace to convict and to convert sinners. To live as instruments of His grace. And to know that come what may, His grace will sustain us. And will give us the grace in Christ face death with the hope of heaven in 1859 the the great preacher james henley thornwell was pastoring first presbyterian church in columbia south carolina and he had the joyful occasion of announcing to his church and to his community the the upcoming wedding of his daughter nancy but as they neared her wedding day and the In the weeks leading up, she took ill with typhoid fever. As the day approached, it became clear that Nancy was not going to survive. Thornwell was overcome in those final moments, and he he came to his daughter and cried out, Oh, my dear daughter, such tragedy. But Nancy replied, Father, do not weep. I know My Savior, he, the preacher, said, but this was to be your wedding your whole life now before you. And the daughter consoled her pastor father. Father, but I now go to a greater groom that I am prepared to meet. Nancy Witherspoon Thornwell was laid to rest on her wedding day. In her wedding dress. With a tombstone that read, As a bride prepared for her groom. Friends, it is not a matter of if. It is a matter of when. Unless Jesus comes back first, every person in this room will die. So how are we to live now with that reality? Let us live with anticipation, with hope, with meaning, and without fear. For death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the reminders you give us of what is to come and where is our hope. And so I pray, as we have prayed for anointed ears, we pray for anointed hearts to not only hear but to receive this word and to respond in faith. Father, that is is the great miracle of grace. And I ask that you would give it and that you would sustain us by it for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.